You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a set of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Ancient Myths and the New Isis Mystery. This is Lecture 4, given on January 8, 1918. We shall try to go somewhat deeper into the matters related to the question that has just been raised. Which particular impulses of human life need to become part of human consciousness in our time as a counterweight to the principle of heredity that has come to dominate almost exclusively in the sciences and also in life more generally? It is a crucial question, but one that needs to be approached slowly and gradually. Actually, this question has the most profound connection with the contrast which I have placed before your mind's eye. On one hand, we have the old Egyptian inscription about the Egyptian Isis, I am the all, I am the past, I am the present and the future. No mortal has lifted my veil. And on the other hand, we have, waiting to be taken into our consciousness, the words which from now on must be complementary to the first. I am the human being. I am the past, the present, and the future. All mortals should lift my veil. Before proceeding any further, we must realize that at the time when the first saying arose in Egyptian culture, to speak of an immortal was still clearly to speak of the human being. But in the Egyptian culture, the mystery as a principle of the mysteries was a deeply rooted principle. The Egyptians who were acquainted with their culture knew that the immortal, living in the soul, must be awakened. But unlike now, the Egyptians as well as the Greeks, at least the Greeks who shared Plato's thinking, really considered as partaking of immortality only that person who had consciously grasped the spiritual world. You can find evidence for this in my title, Christianity as Mystical Fact, where I quote Plato's occasionally harsh words about the difference between people who try to hold in their soul the impulse of immortality, the spiritual impulse, and those people who disdain or neglect it. Thinking it over, you will easily perceive that the saying on the statue of Saïs actually meant that the person who never seeks to grasp the spiritual element in the soul cannot lift the veil of Isis, but those who grasp spiritual life can lift it, that is, in the Egyptian sense, for it sounds somewhat different today, those who, being mortal, make themselves immortal. There was no intention of saying that the human being as such cannot lift the veil of Isis, but only that one who is exclusively bound to the mortal element, one who will not seek the immortal element, cannot lift the veil. Later on, when Egyptian culture fell into decadence, the saying acquired a mistaken interpretation. As the priests transformed the mystery principle into a power principle, They actually sought to instill into the laity, not the priesthood, the idea that they, the priests, were the immortals, and those who were not priests were mortal. In other words, all those standing outside the priesthood were unworthy of lifting the veil of Isis. 
It is as if, in the age of decadence of Egyptian culture, the interpretation had become, I am the all, I am the past, the present, the future, only a priest can lift my veil. In fact, the priests called themselves the immortals in that decadent age. The use of this expression was abandoned since it applies to human beings living in the physical plane. Only the French Academy still uses it, following the Egyptian principle of making especially important persons immortal. One is reminded of it at this time because Bergson, who plagiarized Schelling and Schopenhauer, is about to be elevated to the rank of immortal by the French Academy. This is a remnant from an age when these things were still understood, running into a time when the words, the concepts, and the ideas have moved very far away from their source. Many things will need to be said in the course of these observations, and it might easily look as if my main purpose were to be critical of our times. I have often emphasized that this is not the case. I am characterizing the times, not denigrating them. Still, if we are to speak the truth, one cannot expect that no mention should be made of things that simply must be seen through, whether for their emptiness or for their harmfulness. In fact, we may well ask, is it really that bad to follow a certain example, albeit from afar, that cannot be followed sufficiently? Does it say in the Gospel that Jesus Christ went into the temple and flattered the merchants? What we are told is something else, that he overthrew their tables and so on. In order to promote that which must really be promoted, we need to be true to the facts and point out those things that need to be censured if the age is to progress. We cannot allow ourselves the sentimentality of painting everything in glowing colors, and we certainly should not praise it on the rooftops under the name of universal love. If we look at things rightly, we can say that on one hand, it, it just is the case that we live in the materialistic age and that materialism necessarily leads to abstraction as we have come to know it. That is the alienation from reality and all the catastrophic consequences in our time of this alienation from reality. On the other hand, it can also be said that of the various periods in the post-Atlantean time, to talk only of these, our fifth period is in some respect the greatest age one that brings the most to humanity, one that harbors within it immense possibilities for the evolution and existence of humanity. And it is precisely through the things which human beings develop as the shadow side of spiritual life, precisely through these, those, that human beings make their way into the spiritual world if they proceed rightly. This will, in fact, be the path to the most authentic, the highest of human goals, Evolutionary possibilities in our time are great, greater in some ways than they were in former phases of post-Atlantean evolution. In point of fact, something of immense significance occurred with the beginning of this fifth post-Atlantean period. If we are to give the right coloring to and feel the right nuance of feeling in some of the things we have repeatedly brought up from various viewpoints, we must look in a completely new way at the relationship between the human being and the universe. Of course, the clever ones in Philisterium will call it superstition to speak of a connection between the human being and actual constellations in the cosmos. What matters is to understand that connection rightly. Superstition? What is superstition? The belief that human beings must in some way take their bearings from the universe? 
we go by the clock, which we regulate from the position of the sun. Every time we look at a clock, we practice astrology. <clears throat> there are subconscious members of human nature that take the direction from constellations other than those we go by when in physical life we set our clocks by them. If things are understood rightly, it makes no sense at all to talk of superstition. By way of illustration, I shall now set before your soul a portion of this world clock. This we will use as a further means of studying the riddle that was first propounded. The first post-Atlantean cultural epoch arose after the flooding of Atlantis, when the flood which separates our culture from the Atlantean culture had receded. The macrocosmic influence on that period was such that the force flowing through earthly life was the one corresponding to the rising of the sun at the vernal equinox in the sign of Cancer. Thus we can say that when the sun entered the sign of Cancer at the vernal equinox, the first post-Atlantean civilization began. It could actually be called the Cancer civilization, as long as we do not misunderstand the expression. In other words, when the sun rose in the spring, it stood in the sign of Cancer. We have said earlier that something in the human being always corresponds to things out in the macrocosm. In the human being, Cancer corresponds to the thorax, Speaking in terms of the macrocosm, the first Indian culture was characterized by the fact that it set upon its course while the vernal equinox of the sun was in Cancer. If one were to characterize it from the perspective of the microcosm, one could say that the Indian culture set upon its course at a time when human beings' knowledge of the world, their perceptions, their worldview, were under the influence of those forces which in the crab are expressed within the shell of its chest, within its cuirass. I don't know how to pronounce that word spelled C-U-I-R-A-S-S. Physical human beings today cannot enter into a perceptive and sensitive relationship with the world through the forces of their quote-unquote crab. If human beings develop the forces that are intimately related to the thorax, if through their thorax they sense all that goes on in nature and in human life, then it will be as if they came into direct touch with the outer world, with all that approaches them from the elemental world. The relation between human beings that underlay the original Indian culture was such that if one human being encountered another, each felt the other's nature, as it were, through the sensitivity of the thorax. The other person was felt to be sympathetic, or more or less antipathetic. Just by breathing the air in a person's surroundings, one would learn to know that person. Modern humanity knows nothing of this, and in some ways it is an advantage. Still we do each breathe differently in the proximity of another person. For when we are in the proximity of others, we breathe the air expired by them. Modern human beings have become very insensitive to this. But in the cancer phase of the first post-Atlantean culture, this insensitivity did not exist. A human being could be perceived as sympathetic or antipathetic through his or her breath. My own breath would have moved differently depending on whether the person was sympathetic or antipathetic, and my chest would have been sensitive enough to be aware of its movements. Just think what one actually perceived. One perceived the other, but one perceived the other through something that took place in oneself. 
People experienced the other person's inwardness through a process that was perceived as one's own inwardness, one's own bodily inwardness. This was the cancer culture, illustrated by the example of the meeting of two human beings. But that was the way the whole world was perceived. This was the foundation on which the first post-Atlantean culture was built. A person breathed differently when looking at the sun, when looking at the dawn, when looking at spring, when looking at autumn. And from one's breathing concepts were derived. And just as modern humanity forms its abstract, its straw-like abstract, not even straw, its paper abstract concepts of sun, moon and stars, of growth and thriving, of everything imaginable, so in the first post-Atlantean culture, the cancer culture, Human beings formed concepts, but their concepts were felt in this direct way as co-vibrating with one's own cancer, one's thorax. One can say, therefore, that if this represents the path of the sun and the spring sun stands in cancer, then this is the time when the human being also is in a cancer culture. Every constellation of the zodiac is related to a particular planet and must be regarded as belonging to that planet. The reasons for this are probably known by most of you, but I will perhaps mention them presently. Cancer is considered to be particularly connected to the moon. Since the forces of the moon work in a very particular way, when it stands in cancer, one says that the moon has its house, its home, in cancer. Its forces reside there, and there they are particularly developed. Now, just as in the human being, the thorax corresponds to cancer, so the sexual sphere corresponds to the planetary moon. In fact, one can say that whereas, on the one hand, humans were so susceptible, so receptive and sensitive in the first post-Atlantean epoch, on the other hand, all intimate aspects of the world conception at that time, which have come to light, are concerned precisely with the sexual sphere. At that time, this was appropriate for there was an innocence which disappeared in later, more corrupt ages. Then the sun entered the sign of Gemini, the twins, at the vernal equinox. As long as the vernal equinox continued to be in Gemini, we are dealing with the second Persian post-Atlantean cultural epoch. In the microcosmic realm, Gemini was expressed in all that concerns human symmetry, in particular the symmetrical relationship between right and left hand. There are, of course, other aspects of our being symmetrical. For instance, we see things singly with our two eyes. This cooperation between right and left, shown particularly in the hands and arms, in the, micro in the macrocosm, corresponds to Gemini. Now, that which the human being takes into life through the forces of Gemini, the forces of symmetry, to make into a worldview, just as earlier things were taken in through the thorax, is less closely connected with the person's immediate surroundings. The fact of being symmetrical connects the human being more with what lies away from the earth, not the realm of the earth, but that of the heavens, the cosmic realm. Hence, in the second post-Atlantean epoch, the close connection with the immediate elemental surroundings of the earth fades away, and the Zarathustrian culture appears. This culture was turned toward the cosmos, and what is to become Gemini nature, on one hand to the nature of light, on the other hand to the nature of darkness, the twinned natures connected with the forces 
which the human being expresses through bodily symmetry. Just as the moon has its house in Cancer, so Mercury has its house in Gemini. And just as in the first post-Atlantean epoch the force of the sexual sphere helped the human being to form an intimate relationship with the surrounding world, so with the second post-Atlantean epoch help came from the sphere of Mercury, which is connected with the lower body. On the one hand, the human being's forces pass away from the earth into the outer universe, But in this, as it were, the human being is helped by something that is still heavily tinged with atavistic forces, that is, all that is connected with the vascular and digestive systems. The human digestive system is not just for the digestion of food. It is at the same time an instrument of knowledge. We have forgotten these things. And real judgment, not the feel of which I have spoken earlier, but real discernment, the deeper gift for combination which creates connection with objects, does not come from the head, but from the lower body, and was of service during this second post-Atlantean period. Then came the third, the age when the sun at the vernal equinox entered Taurus, the bull. The forces that descend from the universe when the sun stands in Taurus at the spring equinox are connected in the human microcosm with the regions of the larynx, the forces of the larynx. Hence, in this third post-Atlantean epoch, the Egypto-Chaldean human beings developed as their special organ of knowledge all that is related to the larynx, the feeling of relationship between the spoken word and the object, the word and the things out in the universe, was especially strong in that time. These days, in the age of abstraction, it is not easy to form much of an idea of the intimate connection humans established with the cosmos as they knew it through their larynx. In this case, the forces which correspond to Taurus were assisted by Venus, whose house is in Taurus. In the human microcosm, this corresponds to forces which lie between the heart and the stomach. So whatever was known in that time as the cosmic word was intimately connected with human beings, since the latter understood it through the forces of Venus residing in their own body. There followed the Greco-Latin time, the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. The sun entered Aries, the ram, at the vernal equinox. In the human being this corresponds to the head region, the region of the brow, the upper head. A time began during which humans mainly sought to grasp the world through understanding, and this relationship to the world led to thoughts. Head knowledge is very different from earlier forms of knowing. However, despite the fact that the head is an almost exact image of the macrocosm, and in fact precisely because in a physical sense it is an exact reproduction of the macrocosm, it is really of very little value for spiritual purposes. Forgive me for saying so, but being of a physical nature, the human head is worth very little. And whenever human beings rely primarily on their head, all they can produce is an intellectual culture. The Greco-Latin time brought the head culture to a high point and thus gradually brought the human being into a special relation with the universe, evolving gradually into a full-fledged head and thinking culture which in turn ran its course and came to an end. So from the 15th century onward, as I pointed out yesterday, people no longer were able to connect thinking with reality. However, this head culture, this Aries culture, was such that the human being internalized 
the observation of the universe. As regards the physical world, this Aries culture was most welcome. Only in its decadent form has it become materialistic. The human being in this Aries civilization formed a special relationship with the surrounding world, precisely through the head. It is particularly difficult today to understand the Greek culture. Roman culture developed a more commonplace, Philistine even, version of it, but we do not realize that, for instance, the Greeks' notion of concepts and ideas was different from ours. I have dealt with this in my title, Riddles of Philosophy. That Mars had its house in Aries was most significant for that age. The forces of Mars, again, are those connected with the human head. So Mars, who imparts aggressiveness, was particularly supportive of all that developed in the way of a relationship to the world through the head. In the fourth post-Atlantean era, from the 8th century BC to the 15th century AD, those conditions were developed which could be described as a Mars culture. The configuration of the social structures that spread over the earth during that time was primarily connected to a Mars culture, a warlike culture. Nowadays wars are outdated. Although they may be more frightening, they are really stragglers. We shall come back to this. <clears throat> now, the human head with all its forces and as a purely physical thinking tool is an image of the starry heaven. For this reason, in the fourth post-Atlantean time, there was still something macrocosmic in human thoughts. Thoughts were not yet bound up with the earth. But think now of the revolution that happened with the 15th century, when the Aries culture passed over into Pisces. Pisces' forces are those forces in the human being that are connected with the feet. There was a transition from head to feet. It was an immense shift. That is why if you go back into the time before the 14th century with some understanding and read the alchemical and other writings that are so despised today, you see what deep, what vast insights existed then about cosmic mysteries. But the whole of human culture and human forces, too, made a complete revolution. What humans had formerly received from the heavens, they now received from the earth. The celestial constellations show us how great a shift had taken place in the human being. And this is connected with the beginning of the materialistic age. Thoughts lose their power. Thoughts easily turn into empty phrases. But now consider another remarkable thing. Just as Venus dwells in Taurus and Mars in Aries, so Jupiter's house is in Pisces. And Jupiter is connected with the development of the human brow, the forehead. If the human being can rise to greatness in the fifth post-Atlantean period, it is precisely because in the full independence of their humanity, human beings have become able to use the forces of their head to refine and encompass that which was brought to them from the opposite side. In other words, Jupiter performs the same service for humans in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch that Mars did in the fourth. In a certain respect, one might say that Mars was king of this world in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. But in the fifth, he is not the rightful king of this world, because nothing can really be attained through Mars' forces in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. On the other hand, the greatness of this epoch must be brought about through the forces of the spiritual life, world knowledge, world conception. Human beings are shut off from the heavenly forces, confined in the materialistic period. But in this fifth post-Atlantean age, humans have the greatest opportunity of making themselves into beings of the spirit. 
No age has been as favorable to spirituality as this fifth epoch. All that is needed is courage to drive out the money-changers of the temple. This age must find the courage to set reality, the whole reality, and thus spiritual reality, against the abstractions, against things alienated from reality. Those who read the stars have always known that particular planets affect various sections of the zodiacal path. There is some justification for assigning to each of these constellations Moon, Cancer, Mercury, Gemini, Venus, Taurus, Mars, Aries, Jupiter, Pisces, three decanates as they are called. These three decanates represent those planets which have a particular mission during a particular constellation, while the others remain less active. Thus for the first post-Atlantean age, the Cancer Epoch, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon are the decanates. During the Gemini Epoch, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun. During the Taurus Epoch, Mercury, Moon, Saturn. During the Aries Epoch, Mars, Sun, Venus. During our own epoch, the Pisces Epoch, the characteristic decanates, the forces which can serve us the most, according to the celestial clock, are Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars. Mars, working here differently than when he was in his own house in Aries, is now the representative of human strength. In the outer planets with Saturn and Jupiter, Mars is connected with the human head, the human countenance, word formation. Thus all that is connected with spirituality for this life between birth and death is especially serviceable in this epoch. This epoch contains the greatest spiritual possibilities. In no other age was it granted to human beings to do as much wrong as in this age. In no other age could one sin more seriously against the intermission of the time. Anyone living in consonance with the age will use the Jupiter force to transform the forces coming from the earth into a spiritually free humanity. And we have at our disposal the best, the finest powers developed by human beings between birth and death, the Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars forces. The world clock is favorable to this epoch, but we cannot afford to be fatalistic about things. People cannot say, well, let's hand ourselves over to world destiny. Everything is sure to be all right. Instead, the person who has the will to do so should be prompted to discover endless possibilities in our age. Only as yet people have not given much evidence of that will. But it is just as unfounded to say, well, what can I do by myself? The world is just taking its course. And certainly the world is not paying any attention to us now. But the point I wish to make is a different one. Unlike people 33 years, a generation ago, we cannot say that we won't bother ourselves about anything. For that is the way we came to our current predicament. The point is that each person individually should begin to want to escape from abstraction, to lay aside what is alienated from reality, and to seek, each person alone, to approach reality and get beyond abstraction. We must move away from far-fetched concepts if we are to develop the important matters that will occupy us in the next few days. Discussions of the becoming old, older aging of the human being, that is, the going toward death as much as the coming from birth. Today, pedagogy, the practical education of children, 
proceeds entirely from a total concentration on the fact that the child is born and develops as a child. But the time must come when the child learns what it means to become older. It is not at all easy to develop these things. We need to reach further for the necessary concepts. Let us put it this way. To overcome the estrangement from reality, which is the signature of our time, it is of the utmost importance for human beings to develop the will to attentiveness, that is, the will to set Jupiter in motion. <clears throat> for that precisely is Jupiter's nature. It is the force that makes a perpetual call on our attentiveness. Human beings are very happy nowadays if they don't need to be attentive, if they can resemble the sleeping Isis. I have mentioned the sleeping Isis deliberately. Most people sleep through the present time and feel very, very comfortable doing so, for they hammer out concepts and then stop short at these and will no longer pay attention. The important thing to do is to re-examine the relationships that make up life. And the difficult years in which we are living must above all get us away from what weakened human civilization for so long, inattentiveness, lack of will, and make us look at world conditions. It is not sufficient to skim over the surface of things. For instance, it might easily seem that when I have repeatedly spoken about the harmfulness of Wilsonianism, I was doing so out of some subjective urge. But I am not obeying a subjective urge. It is really necessary today to point the way away from countless illusionary ideas into the direction where attentiveness must unfold. We are learning from the events of the time. Sharpening our attentiveness will allow us to learn from the events of the day an immense amount of what we need in order to understand the great impulses which alone can lead humanity out of the calamities it has brought upon itself. One must ask oneself specific questions if one wants to pay real attention. The point is not to have some general view of something. What matters is how one sees, how one can ask questions concerning the external world. Spiritual science has also a practical significance, which gives the impulse to questions, uh, excuse me, which gives the impulse to question, to put questions. These days, we read a lot about the so-called peace negotiations in Brest-Litovsk. As you know, all kinds of people participated in them. The chief negotiators from Russia, for example, just to single out a few, are Lenin, Trotsky, a certain Mr. Joffe, and a certain Mr. Kamenev, whose real name is Rosenfeld. Trotsky's name is Bronstein. Joffe is a rich trader from Cherson. It is not unimportant, it is perhaps even important, to consider that Mr. Rosenfeld, Kamenev, owes it to pure chance that his head is still upon his shoulders. His head could long since have been sundered from his shoulders. For in November... 1914, many delegates were accused in Russia. You could have read about it at the time, and the information has traveled in other ways. Anyway, these delegates were jailed under the accusation of friendship with Lenin, who at the time was abroad, not far from here. At that time it was believed that Lenin had declared that, quote, of all evils that can happen to Russia at this time, the, the fall of Sardom is the least. Unquote. And so a number of delegates who were known to be corresponding with Lenin were indicted, but it was impossible to arrest them at the time. Of course, all kinds of Russian patriotic words were spoken, words like, Over the heads and mangled bodies of our soldiers there are traitors who have connection with the shameful Lenin in Switzerland, and so forth. 
Further proceedings took place in February 1915. Again, a number of people were accused, among them a certain Petrovsky, also a certain Kamenev, alias Rosenfeld. Kamenev, in particular, was considered the real Russian traitor type, a particularly abominable fellow. As the proceedings started, there was a general feeling that before long his head would be off his shoulders. But Kamenev Rosenfeld could prove that whenever there was talk of war, he had always been a different, he had always taken a different stand from Lenin, so too Petrovsky. They demonstrated that they had no really serious friendship with Lenin. Kamenev Rosenfeld, in particular, was able to prove that he had never wished for a German victory, that only un-Russian crafty comrades like Lenin with foreign interests could desire a German victory, people who felt weak or lazy but awaited the triumph of freedom from German generals. Those were the words spoken during those proceedings. <clears throat> and a certain Kerensky, who later played another role, was assigned to counsel Petrovsky and Kamenev. The charge against both Petrovsky and Kamenev Rosenfeld was high treason, but Kerensky was able to get them off the hook. In his speech we find the following fine words, quote, The accused were very far from planning to stab in the back those who are ready to die for the fatherland. They strongly resisted intrigue, like the one connected with Lenin's secret confederacy. Unquote. Kerensky's oratory and other facts that could be brought forward supplied proof that Petrovsky and Kamenev had nothing in common with Lenin's views, and they came out of it all with fairly sound skins. Petrovsky is now the minister of the interior in Lenin's government, and Kamenev, together with Mr. Joffe, is an important negotiator in Brest-Litovsk. I am quoting these particular stories, and could tell you hundreds and hundreds of similar ones. But the point I wish to make is that it is very important to look at current events, and to get to know current events we must observe the human beings connected with them, if indeed the things that the men I was just talking about are participating in are really current events. It is very easy to stand back and say, yes, negotiations are going on in Brest-Litovsk between Russia and the Central Powers. But that is a form of abstraction. It is not the actual event. One approaches the real only when one is willing to pay attention, to look at the concrete detail. I bring this up merely as an example to show that it is also necessary to study present-day history. Everyone whose days, excuse me, everyone these days, talks about current events, but how little is really known of the events of the day, how little people actually know of what is going on, how little people even guess at what takes place. It is really astounding, and can be understood only through the unbelievable way in which our intelligence is trained. In fact, our intelligence is trained in such a way that in all the sciences people are misled until they form judgments like the one I was describing earlier. If I have one coin, then I have one coin. If I have two coins, then I have none. I have nothing at all. If there is one tomb of Till Eulenspiegel, then he can have lived. If, however, there are two tombstones with an owl in a looking-glass, it proves that Till Eulenspiegel never lived. If I want to make an electric experiment in the physics classroom, I must carefully dry the machines with warmed cloths so that nothing is damp, for otherwise neither the electrical machine nor the inductive machine would obey me, nor anything else. But then, immediately afterward, I say that from out there in the clouds, which are completely drenched and which no professor can have wiped with cloths, lightning comes, and so on. I have often given you examples of the way one person repeats what another, one ha what another has said without anyone examining it. Thus, for instance, one can hear that the fundamental principle of modern physics 
is the con- conservation of energy, of force, and it is traced back to Julius Robert Meyer. Mayer. These days, physicists and natural scientists and other scholars proclaim him a great hero, but Julius Robert Mayer was once put in a lunatic asylum because he had published absurd trash, had claimed to have discovered a new principle. He really was incarcerated in a lunatic asylum. The great credit due him went to some university rector, but I will not stress this any further. It often happens, as you well know. What I will stress is this. Again and again one sees. Conservation of energy. Julius Robert Mayer discovered it. No one reads, but each person repeats what has been said. In Mayer's work, nothing is stated at all in the precise form in which the energy principle is presented today, but it is there in a very different formulation, in fact a very reasonable formulation. Another example lies near our subject. Dr. Schmiedel has given me a magazine article which supports Goethe's theory of colors. Two learned gentlemen assert there that Goethe knows nothing of the Fraunhofer lines. Yet Dr. Schwedel has put together four columns, consisting entirely of passages from Goethe, in which he speaks of the Fraunhofer lines. But the learned gentry talk, they pass judgment on the range of Goethe's optical information, and they drift into such judgments. Goethe did not know of the Fraunhofer lines. They tell people impudent falsehoods, for in this so-called authority-free age, what a scientist says is gospel, just as for many people what politicians say is gospel, and for the politicians what Woodrow Wilson says is gospel. So it is enough these days for someone just to say, Goethe did not know of the Fraunhofer lines, nor is it necessary to prove it to people. For very soon another person will repeat it, and then another, and then a fourth. The inattention, the thoughtlessness with which people live these days is indeed great, while the willingness to look at the concrete is not forthcoming. Moreover, humanity is much too inclined to take a lively interest in abstractions, to become enthusiastic through abstractions. I have merely introduced here what is yet to occupy us, the important idea which must enter the culture of our time and our pedagogy, the principle of human beings becoming old in their physical bodies, which is linked with their becoming younger in their etheric bodies. We shall speak of this in detail next time. The end of lecture four.